0: The weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman, and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time tested principles that help investors succeed.
1: The weighing machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, Emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time.
0: Welcome to The Weighing Machine.
1: Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think.
0: On the podcast today, how to market to and engage with women in the investment industry.
1: We will also discuss the Xi economy, the changing role of women as financial decision makers, and how to encourage women to be part of the investment industry. That's with our guest, Brie Williams, Vice President and Head of Practice Management at Spider Exchange Traded Funds. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman.
0: And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are we watching for at the moment?
1: We have a couple more weeks left in the year. We're having a great year. Uh, The overall U.S. market is up about 25%. I would have to say um, we might hit 30% return for the year. It's been a great year to be a globally diversified investor.
0: Well, that's great. And we do have a lot to talk about today. So I'm going to jump right in and bring in our guest. Bree Williams is Vice President and Head of Practice Management at Spider Exchange Traded Funds. Bree, welcome to the weighing machine. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, before we get started, I'm gonna throw it over to Rusty for our all-important traditional opening question. Rusty? Yes, Bree.
1: This is the all-important traditional question, and that is what is your walk-up song? We need to imagine what oh, we I can love hear. That. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Very happy to share, but I don't just have one song. There's a few on my (laughs) list. We have a playlist. Bring
0: them
1: on. The more the merrier.
2: (laughs) All right. I will do that. And it totally depends on like my mood, the motivation, or what really needs to be accomplished. So let me give you three just to keep it short. So if the mood is about unleashing unleashing my inner boss um, and really needing to shoot for the stars, I'm going to have Lizzo uh, with Like a Girl. Mm -hmm. If this is more about being collaborative, then uh, I'm going to choose the Beatles and with a little help from my friends is always on point. Mm -hmm. And then if it's about more of the acknowledgement that the stars have really aligned, it's a little more me focused, then I can't go wrong with Alicia Keys and Girl on Fire.
1: Nice. We need a DJ to mash those all up together right now. (laughs) By the way, my wife was just in Abbey Road Studios today. Just ironically, Ooh. you'd say the Beatles. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. Wow.
0: Cool. <laughs> well, Brie, so you started out in journalism. I think you have a BA in journalism, from what I understand, from Southern Methodist University. And then you moved into marketing and got your master's in marketing communications from Emerson College. What drew you to the marketing field?
2: So it's been a wild ride. Uh, and I did have my heart set on embarking on a career in broadcast journalism. But about halfway through, I had an opportunity to work for an advertising agency via an internship. So I took the the chance. And long story short, I fell in love with the psychology of consumer behavior and brand development strategy and was lucky enough to turn the internship into an offer. Um, So advertising was my introductory to global brand development and the opportunity to work on brands that we really love, like Frito-Lay and McDonald's. So how could I pass that up? Mm -hmm. Um, And 12 years later, you know, that along the way grew into more marketing-centric opportunities. The opportunity to work in wealth management was presented to me. Um, asset manager took their chance um, on bringing me over to the financial services industry. You know, after spending a good 12 years um, in marketing across healthcare, financial services, packaged goods, but the skill set was transferring over in terms of understanding mindset, um, how to really develop and launch both brands and products, and getting to the heart of you know what makes someone loyal. Um, how do you develop and grow a business? Uh, So it was a huge opportunity to dig in deeper on financial services. And I think it's a dynamic market. I mean, each day, even though you know the basics, it's not the same. And you need to be really nimble on your feet. Um, I had the good fortune of working with some great people and an executive sponsor was really instrumental to helping me develop my skills, especially in um, sales distribution. Uh, by upping my game here, by taking me under his wing. So I was recruited over to State Street Global Advisors, which is the asset management arm of State Street Corporation, and was asked to develop a business development and consultative resource for the firm within Spider, um, Mm -hmm. which is uh, Spider Global ETFs Exchange Traded Funds. And there I lead the practice management team. But I also run point on sales enablement for our environmental, social, and governance exchange traded funds. I really enjoy what I do. Uh, I think in the business, regardless of which seat you sit in, it, there's this immediate feedback loop, and that gives us the opportunity to continuously be testing what our viewpoints are. We have the opportunity to problem solve in real time, and, and I find that very energizing.
0: So I want to talk more about what you do at State Street, but before that, if we could just back up a minute, because you became vice president of Arnold Worldwide four years after graduating with your bachelor's degree. What do you attribute your early success to?
2: A lot of hard work <laughs> um, in advertising. You know, it's, it's an uh, it's an opportunity to really learn on the fly, and I, I say that sincerely because part of the job in being in account management is whether you're pitching for a piece of business or you're actually assigned to a piece of business, you have to learn that business really quickly and go very deeply. Uh, so, having the ability to understand not only the market that that company is a part of, but the consumer set, the goals that that company or business unit is, is trying to achieve, and bringing that to life through a strategy that can either acquire new customers, develop more loyal customers or switch someone over, you know, from um, one laundry detergent to another as an example you know, is a real test of keeping yourself on your toes and being able to play nicely in the sandbox with a wide variety of of different team players from creative services to production, to legal, to operations, to your client facing responsibilities in um, those similar areas. It's very fast paced and clients on average typically engage with an agency, you know, three to five years of a life cycle. Um, so, it's this constant changing environment. And at one point, you could be juggling multiple accounts. Mm-hmm. So, four years went by in the blink of an eye. <laughs> so, uh,
0: and you uh, you also spent time at Putnam Investments. And now, as we've mentioned, you're head of mm-hmm. practice management at Spider. Um, can you tell us a little like your day to day at Spider and the work that you do there?
2: Sure. I think simply stated, you know, we work um, with a wide range of not only financial advisors, but wealth management firms. And I have the good fortune of being able to have a global scope to my role. So even though we focus day-to-day on covering the United States and the intermediary market, um, we also support our clients and spider colleagues in EMEA um, out in the Europe area, uh, Germany, London, and so on, and then Australia, um, as well as extending over into Japan. So it's a lot of cultures coming together, um, but at the end of the day, the goal is the same, which is how can we help financial advisors achieve growth and help their end clients, individual investor, maximize the financial resources they have to work with. So how can we help be an extension of their team is really how I think about how we approach each and every day.
1: Great. We have so many juicy topics today. The very first one is... So State Street Global Advisors installed the Fearless Girl statue the night before International Women's Day in March of 2017. So the first question, mm-hmm. what does that Fearless Girl statue mean to you, Brie?
2: So I will absolutely answer that. But let me turn it back on to you first. Wait a when second. You see Fearless girl, This is our podcast. Yeah. We
1: interview you.
2: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Oh, what do you see when you see Fearless Girl? I mean, what does she mean to you or, or represent for you?
1: Robin, she's talking to you first.
0: Oh, she's talking <laughs> to me. Okay. Uh, I think,
2: you know, Fearless Girl captures
0: a moment in history, I think, when we're sort of challenging the status quo, the way things have always been done. And on mm-hmm. Wall Street, the way things have always been done is men have been in control, right? White men specifically and... We are in many ways changing our expectations of who should be in power. And I think she just represents some of those efforts and the bravery required to make those changes.
2: Great.
1: I have to follow that No, So I have to have an answer because I really (laughs) have a story to it, too. So the first time I saw the statue uh, was shortly after it was introduced. And it did remind me of my daughter when she was a little fearless girl. And I did. uh, She was going to college at Bowdoin College in Maine. And I kind of sent her some information and I was always trying to convince her, like, you should come into our industry. And there was always this pushback. And it makes me think that, you know, there it is really difficult to get more women to be interested in the investment profession. And I think there's like these myths about investing is just about high level math, you know, for instance, or something like that. And, you know, right now I'm currently hiring for an open position, for instance, in the resume flow. It's as you would probably guess, I've, I've had just one female candidate out of dozens and dozens of resumes. So I just wish there were more fearless girls applying for jobs in the investment industry.
2: You and me both. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons fearless girl is so important. You know, she represents inspiration and aspiration. She also gave a physical form to what's been an elusive problem. I mean, overnight after she was installed, she became a contemporary symbol, the strength of, you know, a very age old challenge and gave a face to that. So I think that's one of the reasons why she resonates so deeply with so many and truly ignited that global conversation about the power of women in leadership. Um, What we did when we launched this campaign in 2017 was really based on a simple truth. Companies that have more diverse leadership perform better. Um, So when you think about the response, and that's one of the reasons why I like to ask that question of people I engage with on this topic, you know, what you what you look at uh, and what you see and what it means to you, you know, only continues to echo what the public response has been. Um, There's no single best answer, um, but the attention that came and surrounds Fearless Girl today gives us this tremendous platform to be brave but also to as a company you know extend our asset stewardship commitment so we want to make sure that we're using our voice and our vote so we have ability through strong engagement voting thought leadership we can influence where possible enhancements not only to impact diversity at the board level but also throughout the entire organization because it is about the diversity of thought whether that means you're a woman or a man or a person of color you know it is about inclusivity but with the effort of having those d- different viewpoints so we don't operate in an echo chamber the world is far too competitive to keep doing that and then i'll give you my personal take on when i see fearless girl um i you know what i see is actually our future You know, I look at her and I see a future employee, which so Rusty, I hope you get your future fearless girl (laughs) employee. Um, I also see our future client, you know, the subject we're going to talk a little bit more about today, you know, an empowered investor that's owning her worth. And then she represents to me personally, more specifically, power with a purpose.
1: Okay, one more question about Fearless Girl. So, again, when State Street Global Advisors uh, placed the Fearless Girl statue in Lower Manhattan, it's also about the time they introduced the Women Leadership Oriented ETF, SHE, S-H-E, great ticker, symbol. The goal was stated that it was going to change the way that companies did business. So, four years later, has Fearless Girl had an impact?
2: She has. Um, And four years It's not a lot of time, and we're not alone in creating an effort for change. So we've had many, many join this call. But what we can see when you look across the landscape and how that's resonated across the globe is change. Just to give us some data points to punctuate that, the number of companies in the Russell 3000 without a woman on their board, that dropped from about 25% to around 10%. Uh, We now have every company in the S&P 500 that now has at least one woman on their board, and then more broadly, you know, we've seen countless women change conventional thinking, whether that's in the corporate boardroom with a Fortune 500 company and at the highest levels of government. Um, when we think about the uh, focus within asset stewardship and our commitment there as a company, you know, what we also see changing is the tone of these engagements. So when you engage with a company that had lacked gender diversity, the conversation is no longer about why are we engaging on this issue? Instead, the focus has shifted to why not? Why not enhance their board by embracing the value of diversity? Fast forwarding through those four years, I think we will continue to see her impact press on. Um, Just this past March, um, also in celebration of International Women's Day, you might have recalled, we installed a broken glass ceilings surrounding her, and that was a symbol to reflect the new ground that women are breaking each and every day. And I do think it's important to celebrate the progress that's been made because it's been tremendous um, as a society, but we also need to continue to recognize that there's more work to be done, um, and we need to continue to work together through these challenges. And I think the global pandemic was an opportunity to not only give us some lessons um, specific to this topic at hand, but also a lot of opportunities. Um, We have some more work to do and there are clear implications for businesses, the economy, society as a whole. So I think all these challenges over the last two years, most recently, just continue to remind us of why diversity of thought and problem solving in leadership is critical to the steward the assets that we steward on behalf of our clients and I know the same is is true mm-hmm. of you
0: so we we hear a lot about the she economy and that's that's a large topic to discuss it refers to the growing role of women as the decision makers in the household spending and as growing forces in industries they take on more leadership roles and there is a lot to talk about there but our focus today is on how to work with women investors so not all financial advisors and firms out there know how to market to women and engage them so First, can you walk us through how the dynamic is shifting to make women the new face of wealth?
2: Sure. Uh, So there's a lot of data to back up the business case of the female investor, her power and her influence and importance as an individual investor. Just demographically, you know, women make up 51% of the population. So I think we should dismiss and stop talking about women as a niche. Uh, you can't be half the population and be a niche. Um, and that means, you know, whether we're talking about that as an advice consumer or more broadly, financial services in general, in attracting and retaining and servicing female investors, it's critical to our growth imperative for wealth management. And it's critical for her own bottom line uh, to meet her need of def- her definition of financial security, living life on her terms financially. Uh, well, uh, on the living long and living well journey. So, when we think about how much is at stake, because you mentioned business case, you know, we have money in motion already. An unprecedented amount of assets is changing hands and shifting into the hands of US women. And that's just over the next three to five years. That's around a $30 trillion opportunity by the end of this decade. She already controls a third of the world's wealth. Um, and more than half of the US personal wealth. So she's a sizable economic force. Setting demographic data aside, you also see changes in wealth among our younger women. So younger affluent women are becoming more financially savvy and engaging more actively in their financial lives. So just comparing some data, Um, Just five years ago uh, versus today, now we have 30% more married women making financial and investment decisions. Uh, More than ever, we find that women are the lead breadwinner in the family, and that only spurs growth in their own investable assets um, as a family unit. And then when we look to a particular demographic, um, there's a lot of opportunity with our millennial women, and 78% of this demographic report that I'm already the primary decision maker in my household. So all of these changes together represent a critical inflection point for our industry. And when you think about, you know, people vote with their feet, women are no different. What we've observed over the years is that when you have an affluent woman taking over financial decisions in her household, she typically is going to be seeking out a new wealth management relationship to better suit her needs because we currently have a gap in advice when it comes to how we service, connect with women. And we need to close that gap. And when you look at you know, where is that really a pain point, it tends to be in the uh, baby boomer segment and our younger silent generation segment. 70% of women that have become widows in their later part of their years, they're switching that wealth management relationship within 12 months of losing their spouse.
0: So when you talk to women, what do you what do they say about their overall experience with the investment industry and what can we change to improve that experience?
2: So we'll end up on a positive note, but unfortunately, the conversations, the feedback that we're hearing is still less than positive. Uh, more often than not, the feedback is directly tied to a feeling that I'm being misunderstood. So we have a lot of misperceptions around who she is, how she invests. Um, And when we let these misperceptions become our reality or our perceived reality of who she is as a client, then we're undermining her influence. And when we do that, this creates a disconnect, not only in the client experience itself, but it's very harmful to her financial freedom and wellness. Now, this disconnect is certainly not about our industry being oblivious to women. Quite the contrary. She's identified as extremely valuable to our industry. But what's happening is we often look to some of our tactics and they are more of a tick mark item in the marketing activity box. Um, And that is a different approach when they actually walk in the door and then begin the experience with the relationship and or service offerings. Just two data points that I find very uh, eye opening as to how wide is this gap. Uh, 61% of women today still feel misunderstood by financial services. That's broadly in financial services. So whether that's credit card company, a bank, a financial advisory relationship, um, accountant, you know, we all have work to do here. Um, but also the one that I think is a missed opportunity, especially as we look a little younger in the demographics, the self-guided uh, female investor, almost 60% of that segment don't see the need to partner with that financial advisor because they're not seeing the value. So how do you really get behind that data point? You have to peel the onion deeper. You really need to understand, you know, where does she feel she has a critical gap? And it often is in uh, meeting her financial goals and where you see some differences when you start to look at men and women. It's not necessarily that you have to have a different service model, but it is, can you rise to the challenge and more deeply understand her differentiated needs. So when you think about relationships, education, employment status, those are all key differentiators in a woman's life that will drive her financial priorities, her values, and that may change one or many times throughout her life. So we have to commit to a more systematic approach. We need to transform the experience to include respect and inclusion and participation. Um, where she's actively engaging across her financial life. And that will do a better job of retaining and serving her as a long-term investor. This is about giving her the right financial experience. It's not about investing differently.
1: Listening to this, I was was thinking, is it a myth that, when it comes to investing, that women are less interested and less engaged in the investment process itself. I know you're talking about financial planning a lot, but just when it comes to investing, mm-hmm. are they or are women less interested and engaged?
2: So there's a little bit of truth to that, but let me explain before people hang up on our podcast <laughs> here. <laughs> so backing up, few women would dispute the importance of financial empowerment. I mean, it was just a generation ago, 1974, I believe, when banks could deny women credit, um, such as obtaining a credit card or mortgage in their own name based on their own financial wherewithal. That was not that long ago. Women clearly have come a long way since then um, and have further to go. So, to get at the heart of the matter, you know, why it may feel like a woman is less engaged. It has to do with investor sentiment. So when you think about her as a consumer of all things finance, the bottom line is that women are feeling very short-changed by the financial community. So let me give you some direct feedback um, from a Gen Xer, a millennial, and a baby boomer. So the Gen Xer, I hate being stereotyped because of my gender and my age. I often feel like I'm being talked down to. As if I don't understand more than just the basics. Um, millennials' input, as a single woman, I feel financial services institutions are not looking for my business. And then our baby boomer, I don't need the advisor to tell me how smart he or she is, but I do need my advisor to give me confidence in my abilities. And I think those are all fair and reasonable. Uh, when we, you know, need to actively listen um, and then transform what isn't working as well as it could be. So when you look specifically to that question, financial engagement, the gender skew that you you note, Randy, may be true. Um, And it could be due to deeply entrenched gender roles. It could be due to education levels. It could be due to income brackets or a combination of all of that. Um, But no matter which demographic we're talking about with women, there are many still playing catch up when you think about how do I take control as an individual investor and manage the big picture, not just my day-to-day, short-term financial decisions. Um, So we see the engagement higher on the shorter-term money matters than the longer-term money matters, which are some of the need for being more involved in investment management, not just budgeting and cash flow or some of the near-term financial plans that are on her wish list for financial security and financial growth. And I think that's a critical finding because if you can be engaged in those longer-term decisions, which relate to investments, insurance, estate planning, and so on, if you disconnect or even abdicate from those um, it can be some ser- serious consequences, particularly yep. for
1: women. Let's talk about investing styles. So since men are from Venus or are they from Mars? Oh, <laughs> Mar- as far as you Mars. can see, I read that. I've read other books. <laughs> I, really, I have I'm so sorry. So, all right. So, you know, the point I'm making. So what unique challenges do women as investors face that are different than their male counterparts?
2: Sure. So, when I think about how far women have come in a short period of time, you know, and even as professional standing, pay parity, economic status all continues to improve, uh, we have to face the fact that there are some unique challenges that can affect a female's ability to build and preserve wealth. Some of those are women live longer. Sorry, guys, women are going to outlive you on average by five years. Uh, women also tend to step in and out of the workforce for a family. Um, and caregiving, whether that's children or elder care. And then they also face higher costs to cover healthcare and retirement because of the longevity. Uh, So when you have less time on the job, um, that contributes to lower lifetime earnings, which will then ultimately mean um, as an individual, you'll have less money devoted to investing. So for both sexes, that requires greater awareness to planning to sufficiently meet one's goals. But as you think about more specifically women in retirement, as our example, you have to weave in that longevity. You have to weave in your work patterns and your financial commitments that are important to you into your planning strategies. So it's not just enough to mitigate healthcare, sequence of returns, inflation risks. You have to do that, of course, but you have to go further. Um, I also think it's worth noting that men and women do share a lot of fundamental similarities when it comes to approaching their financial lives. But in practice, where things start to differ is the life journey each gender takes. Um, and there are financial consequences and circumstances and the decisions that they make um, that can influence the way they set and aim for their goals, uh, what their approach is when they think about investment decision making. And last but not least, the very nature of the type of financial advisor relationship they want.
0: So, Bree, you talked about some of the reasons that women provide for not working with advisors. One of them is that they don't feel understood or listened to. So how can financial advisors learn to recognize and overcome the gender bias that may exist?
2: Sure. I mean, any individual, and I think more so in particular, women's decision to work with an advisor is highly individual and highly personal. Um, Of the women that we spoke with, what they're looking for is a straightforward relationship. They want an investment partner in their advisor who both demonstrates understanding and integrity. They want to also be empowered in the decision-making process. So when we think about what this means for a practitioner, it is about being client-centric. But that does require us to have a better awareness of that financial journey and the key. And that's the key for us when we think about where do we reach her? When do we reach her? How do we more effectively engage her? That said, each person is different. But when we need to look for some efficiency and scale, you can look for patterns in our own data intelligence. And that'll allow us to do smarter segmentation and be uh, sharper in how we outreach so we can be effective. We mentioned some of the life journey differences uh, that women take and that deeper understanding that is required for her needs, preferences and behaviors. Um, That's imperative. Let me give you two quick examples. If you think about performance and goal setting, many, many women would be very happy to outperform the stock market. However, it's not necessarily their top or primary goal. They're more likely than their male counterparts to say that one of their primary concerns is I don't want to outlive my assets in retirement. I want to have enough savings in retirement. Financial wellness would be another example. Health is top of mind. And we see some differences there between the genders. Women are more likely than men to worry about the cost of healthcare, paying for long-term care insurance and not being a burden on others later in life. So the bottom line matters, but it's really the preferred path to get to that bottom line that is more important.
1: When it comes to client service, we know that one size does not fit all. So what should advisors be thinking about and taking to account when they're working with the women investors?
2: So her client service preferences, they're not radically different than that of men, but they do have distinct opinions about how they choose to engage with their advisor. And if we can recognize those distinctions and address them as part of the relationship management experience, I think we'll find we have more success here. And to your point, there is no one woman. Um, Not only are there differences between the genders, there's also differences within the gender. So when you think about it, and again, it's not about applying a broad brush here, even though I'm talking about differences within the female segment itself, There are formative experiences and general characteristics that each generation um, will apply. And those are psychographics, not just the pure demographics. And that gives us a better appreciation for how evolution, not just genetics, can influence the relationship with money and how in turn that relates to financial decision-making. If we put that into context, let's just pick on Gen X and millennials to provide a little bit more insight here and um, what we mean by some of these um, demographic formative experiences. So Gen X, if you're in Gen X, that's my generation. Uh, you were born between 1965 and, and 1976. This generation, you know, we were born um, and raised to believe that girls could do anything and that we could have it all. Um, I like to believe we're smart women. We're also very grateful for what we have, but we're exhausted. Um, we're running through our mid-40s or entering our 50s. We're very resilient in our um, ambition to move ahead financially. But what we're finding is that as a Gen Xer, we need advice more now than ever. COVID in particular took the wind out of our sails in our peak earning years, which is resulting for some, if we've started to get disconnected or overly um, busy, uh, we're setting aside some long-term decision-making, and that's going to have some negative consequences if we don't pay attention. You know, on the positive side, I think our generation paved the way for work-life balance. However, as we all know, and when you look at the data, women in this generation more than others are reporting this high level of work-family interference. And we all know time is money, except when it's unpaid. So when you're stepping in and out of that workforce to be that caregiver, um, that potential cost in wages that are lost Social Security, that could equate to, you know, over $324,000 in a lifetime. It's a lot. Millennials, picking on them now. This is a group that's much larger in size, 1977 to 1995. It's a pretty big range. Um, They're rocking the workplace right now, and they're actually poised to be the most financially independent women in history. So their ages today range from 26 to 44 years old. Um, They're really living in a different world relative to where women were financially in the mid-70s, as an example. When we think about some of the positive trends that we see among this demographic, they're breaking this abdication cycle. They're engaging earlier in investing, including long-term investing. They have more confidence and they're more self-assured in their financial wellness. Um, what's interesting is, you know, where is that coming from? Um, they're empowered by technology and they're empowered by role models. So when we think about technology, 71% of this demographic are reporting that technology has enabled their investing knowledge. So they have the accessibility, an infinite amount of information at their fingertips. They've also benefited from their role models and having someone to emulate from. Almost 50% of millennials are reporting back that they have a strong financial role model in their family today. And I think those are some important nuances to understand when you start getting into the complexities of the female investor.
1: I have a question. Um, In the traditional male-female marriage or partnership, what has research shown when it comes how they work together to make important financial decisions?
2: So money is the number one issue married couples fight about. It's an emotional topic. Um, And so some level of tension, we have to expect that. And when you think about managing money as a dynamic duo, that's also not one size fits all. And you also have to recognize, and we can all relate to this, that your money mindset is very different than your partner's. Um, Different views and different experiences, completely normal when you think about engagement with money. But that's actually not the real root of the problem here. Um, When couples argue about finances, their source of tension really comes down to a lack of communication. Hearing each other's input, it's critical in how they should be reaching financial decisions. So some insights that we can glean from looking at research, we do find, and it's how most of us get through the day, we have to divide and conquer. And relationships do that very well. Um, But it's one thing to step back from Routine Money Matters. And the stakes are too high if you keep your financial issues at arm's length, whether you're the alpha or beta in the relationship. And there's a big difference between delegating and abdication. So, in addition to you know just being mindful of staying connected, um, you also need that financial transparency in the relationship, that communication to create peace, but also to have the security and the trust between the two partners. You also see that couples would have very high agreement that they want to discuss, they believe in it, that we should approach our finances as a team. 81% say that that's important. But now how many people actually follow through on that? There's a difference there. It's more like yes, briefly, as opposed to yes, in detail. So We've got some work at home to do in our relationships about being more open and comfortable talking about money issues. Um, Because when you can talk about money productively as a couple and truly work together as a team, then you have a better handle on owning your own worth, owning your family's worth um, and are in a much better position to tackle the curveball when life throws it to you.
1: I think the best way to have those conversations is with a bottle of wine in front of the fireplace, (laughs) usually kind of set the stage, you know. (laughs)
2: Yes. Have a money date. Have a money date. Bring wine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: That's a great idea. So Brie, also, um, you mentioned already that the pandemic has particularly impacted women and their financial life. But uh, I have a question on that. Do you think it's Mm -hmm. switched their priorities in terms of their financial and investing goals or how has it impacted their priorities?
2: So there's some truth to what you're saying there, Robin, about some changes in prioritization. And not all of it's been by choice, though. Um, Everyone, of course, has faced unprecedented challenges during the global health pandemic, but we do see that women have borne the brunt of the economic and social fallout of COVID-19. If we look at the economic data, you know, you can see that women's paid labor, women's run businesses, those have been hit rather hard. I mean, to put some statistics around that, 40% of all employed women work in hard hit sectors, food services, retail, entertainment, compared to that of men, you know, which is lower, that's around 36% in those same sectors. So not only does that have repercussions for the employers, but also when we were talking about women's pay equity, their financial wellness, future retirement security. So on the home front, now getting back to some of the choice or by force, the quarantine measures did shake the snow globe. So you had school at home, people working from home, um, you had closed or limited daycare options. So you had the burden of unpaid care with and domestic work colliding with what you need to do if you're a working individual. Both men and women of course experience this, but you do see the burden of that work, the bulk of it shifting to the female in the family when you start considering elder care as part of that equation. Um, Cause we were talking about a global health pandemic here. Um, With that, many women made some tough choices about their jobs um, and their families. And some of these women possibly, um, what was probably assumed to be a short-term decision if they stepped back from their job, we might have um, lost them in the workforce altogether. So it's a noisy world out there for investors. I do think 2020, last year, was particularly challenging to navigate. Uncertainty continues. um, But it's not just on health and safety. We now have top concerns being reported on inflation and tax. So the objectivity of wealth management and advice should really shine in a time like this because we want to focus them on what matters while preparing them for the continued uncertainty that lies ahead.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit, kind of get more little businessy here, but, and what has changed in terms of the competitive wealth management landscape? So those advisory firms, for instance, that are just focusing on women investors, are they gaining market share?
2: So you do see some ground um, productively being gained and you have many leading firms that, you know, really come out strongly articulated their commitment to meeting a woman's needs. What they've done and done well is they've experimented some new product offers. They've hired more female financial advisors. They've launched financial literacy programs. They've become more involved in community outreach events. And all of that reiterates the importance, authentically, of serving women as clients. There's also been no shortage, and I'm sure since we've all been home a lot more, we've seen a lot more television, whether it's on our computer screen or the traditional TV set. You know, there's no shortage of marketing campaigns that feature women. In settings, whether it's about retirement planning, purchasing insurance, and buying homes. Um, But these measures are no longer enough. We have to go further. We have to, when we think about our role as a wealth management firm, how do we commit to something that's more systematic in our approach so we can really transform that client experience in a way uh, that really will retain and serve her as that long term investor? And when we want to win with women, because um, we still have more work to do here, we have to have a service offering that's diversified. And our change management, when we think about what types of adjustments we need to make to the service model, we have to approach it in a bite-sized manner so we can actually stick to the changes we want to make. Um, so we want to phase out our journey and you have to take a um, multi-dimensional approach to that. You need your go-to-market strategy, your people strategy, your practice management strategy, what's your value proposition, and then, of course, how does technology fit into all of that? The prize for those that crack this code is substantial. So if we think about the influence and importance of our baby boomer women as clients, uh, those firms could see one-third higher revenue potential. If you think about the women that are rising in the ranks right behind them, um, acquiring and retaining the younger women, uh, especially millennials, that could be four times faster revenue growth. So there's a lot of opportunity and upside, um, but we have to have that more sustainable approach to servicing her.
0: So we have focused a lot today on women investors, but how -hmm. can we encourage more women to become investment professionals, including being financial advisors?
2: Good question. And actually, we have some good news here. So representation of women in our industry has been on the rise. We now have women as the majority of financial service industry employees, and the percentage of female executives is expected to grow by 31% by 2030. Um, and I'm very encouraged by that fact. And we should definitely take a moment to reflect on the factors that contributed to this growth thus far. That's intentional with our recruitment efforts. That's being innovative in how we retain women in the workplace. Um, we have supportive reentry programs now, um, as well as the importance of mentoring, sponsoring, and making strong peer networks available. We're certainly not done. There's more progress to be made. It's also never as evenly distributed as we wish it to be. Um, So we want to make sure that we're bringing forward this pool of talent for immediate client benefit. And we have to actively increase our commitment here. So how do you source this talent, especially when you think about the pool of candidates among women and minorities is rather small to begin with. Again, Rusty, to the challenge you're talking about here. Mm
0: -hmm. So if we
2: want to make this change possible, we have to be the change agents that's not easy to do, but there's power in our voice and we need to use it and we have to follow through. So when I think about recruiting or attracting and opening up our eyes to women that might not be sitting in a traditional seat that you would normally pull a candidate from, you can look to sales bias as an example. So with the sales role in mind, you know historically our industry has rewarded asset gathering, revenue generation above any other firm activity. And that emphasis creates a sales culture that will then cast non-sales activities as support functions. Um, and you both know well that not every non-sales activity is a support function. could be just as critical to developing client relationships and driving sales revenue. Um, So to break that cycle, because what happens is what traditionally makes a lead financial advisor or a firm principal is the people that do not have sales experience don't get considered for even being put into some of those career tracks. So we want to make sure that women in all firm areas have an opportunity and are aware of ways that they can learn, succeed, and grow in management positions. And they shouldn't all be based on just a sales criteria can be a component of it. You need to give someone a chance to learn how to fish first before you expect them to do it. Um, and that's an important area for firms, especially in light of the demographic trends. But when you think about what does a financial advisor do, a true partner that's integral to one's financial life delivers holistic financial advice. So that means non-sales skills should be highly valued and developed because at the end of the day, it's a relationship management yeah. business.
1: I sometimes think in terms of recruiting more women into the industry, it's, it's almost as if I wish there were more college groups that were just like women in investing because mm-hmm. that would be, I mean, just from a career minded standpoint uh, for those young women, it would be such an edge because then recruiters would have a very specific group to recruit from. And that's, that's just, a, that's just the, the ground floor. But I think that would probably help a lot is my guess.
2: I would agree. You could go one step further and depending on proximity to some of the colleges in your community, and if you're putting forward a a conference and it's appropriate, or at least part of the sessions, why not offer an invitation, you know, for them to experience what this industry is really about because you're providing education at those conferences. Um, It's a great chance to meet professionals for you to start recruiting potentially interns, Um, or at least putting your your eyes on some potential talent that would be great for your teams.
1: To close out the podcast, we're going to move some of our favorite questions now. And yeah, the first question (laughs) is, in our profession, we have an obligation to perform at a high level. So Brie, how Mm -hmm. do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to make sure that you are performing at a high level?
2: (laughs) Okay, so a bit of a loaded question there. So I would say I... I definitely have to remind myself to put my own oxygen mask on first.
1: <laughs> well said, yeah.
2: <laughs> Especially critical when stress levels are running very high or if I start seeing blurred lines between my personal and professional lives. So I will say, you know, to, to keep my mind sharp, I, f- I do better in the day when I get up early, go for that run, jump into that spin class it's a great way for me to just clear my head. I mean, I will also admit to getting some fantastic ideas um, or even problem solving a few things out while I've been pounding the pavement. So there's a big difference to my day if I skip it uh, versus actually taking that hour to, to dedicate to, to me and my mental health. But I'm not a saint. So there's also days where the glass of wine I, at five o'clock, has to have a much more generous.
1: Call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we are recording this on Friday, so that could be one of those days.
2: <laughs> it could be, could be. Happy hour might have to start a That's little right. early. <laughs>
1: Well, my next question is, and I'm guessing you're going to have a great answer here. I already think our show notes are going to be loaded here, uh, but given you gave us three walk-up songs, I bet you're going to give us a lot of content for this next question too. But do you have any suggestions for what advisors or investors should be reading books or Twitter or whatever, or what they should be listening to like podcast?
2: Absolutely. So no shortage in my answer here. You are correct. (laughs) Um, I, I am an avid reader. I love books. Um, so personally, I'm going to lean in that direction. And I would offer to your listeners that we have this great piece. It's called Money Smart Resources. It's a guide for individual investors where there's lots of options, uh, whether you want to engage online, listen to a podcast, or, you know, read an old fashioned book in your lap. We all learn differently. So lean into what works for you. But when I think about some of my favorites on that list, and of course they're going to be books because that's my preferred way to engage in material. You know, if you're looking for something on the general financial planning and investing basics, I love the book called Woman's Worth, Finding Your Financial Confidence. Eleanor Blaney wrote that. She's a trailblazer in her own right in financial services. And I do find that her book has a tremendous amount of practical advice, as well as some exercises to get some of those basics down pat. Um, If you're a younger investor, 20s, 30s, Get a Financial Life um, by Beth Cobley, is a solid guidebook. There's information here that's delivered in a very down to earth style. Um, It can show you how if you're just starting out to decrease debt, avoid some common money mistakes um, and navigate the world of personal finance And then for those that are thinking about money management through the family lens, Linda Davis-Taylor, who's another trailblazer in personal finance, I love her book on the business of family, how to stay rich for generations. Um, What she does is she actually takes the ideas from corporate world and translate that to your personal life, giving a very practical user-friendly methods that can help families plan and work together as a team. Um, The copy that I have is just chock full of sticky notes at this point. For your financial advisors, I do have a book for you too. Um, One of my favorites is Practice Made More Perfect. That's by Mark Tabersian. I think that's an excellent resource manual. Um, His revised edition looks at how you can thrive and prosper um, as a financial advisor in today's space. I think there's lots of practical ideas. They're all grounded in the principles of sound business management.
1: Good stuff.
0: All great suggestions. Well, Brie, it has been really great having you on the show today. Great discussion. How can listeners learn more about you and what you're doing at State Street?
2: So you can find me on platforms like today's podcast, or you can certainly check out our work. The whole team's work is available on ssga.com. We're always happy to engage and support the next chapter of growth. So we're pretty accessible
1: great well brie i thank you so much for coming on the podcast i think we could have easily doubled the length of this podcast we would love to have you as a guest in the new year as you publish new material so i'm sending you the invitation out right now awesome that's what i wanted to hear thank yeah
2: <laughs> i would love to this was fun
0: really All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced, stay the course, and happy new year. All right. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at Rusty at Orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.